So we are in James chapter one. We just started James a couple weeks ago and uh, we're going through the book of James. Right now we're in chapter five, uh, one, verses five through 11. Uh, I wanna welcome our guests. If you're out from out of town, thank you so much for joining us. You came on the right day because we have a wonderful barbecue potluck afterwards. But of course, the word is the best meal, amen? Food for the soul and food for the stomach today. James chapter one, verses five through 11. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Amen, this is God's word. So from the first four verses of James, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, has set before us a path to maturity and completeness. And it is spiritual fortitude that comes from the testing of our faith. And that testing of our faith we call trials, hardships, difficulties. But how are we able to look at the trials of life with joy? He tells us to greet them with joy. Dick Sume wrote beautifully about this. I've heard this all my life, but it bears repeating. He wrote, life on earth would not be worth much if every source of irritation were removed. Yet most of us rebel against the things that irritate us and count as heavy loss what ought to be rich gain. We're told that the oyster is wiser, that when an irritating object like a, a bit of sand gets under the mantle of his shell, he simply covers it with the most precious part of his being and makes of it a pearl. The irritation that it was causing is stopped by encrusting it with this pearly formation. A true pearl is therefore simply a victory over irritation. Every irritation that gets into our lives today is an opportunity for pearl culture. The more irritations that the devil flings at us, the more pearls we may have. We need only to welcome them and cover them completely with love, the most precious part of us. And the irritation will be smothered out as the pearl comes into being. And what a store of pearls we may have if we will. Now saying it and living it are two different things. James goes on to tell us what we need to see life in this way is wisdom. Verse five again, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given him. Later in this letter, 
He calls it the wisdom that comes from above. Wisdom helps us discern God's purposes in the trials. Wisdom guides us to respond in the right way and helps us to order our affections in such a way as to help us moving on down this road of life. Wisdom tells me that my complaining is not helping. It also tells me that praising God in the trial is uplifting. Wisdom points me to the conclusion and shows me that it's worth enduring. We get this wisdom that comes from above by simply asking God for it. Now, the normal human reaction, of course, is complaining to God about the trials of life. James tells us that the redeemed should be asking God for wisdom in dealing with those trials. That's the response of the new creation. In the original language, it is an imperative command. Are you lacking the wisdom to see yourself through the trials of life? You must greet them with joy. We usually are, are so encumbered with the difficulty, so ensnared in it, that we have to ask God for wisdom, how to see it properly. The world certainly does not have the answer. You know, I think if you ask AI, why am I going through this problem? I don't think you'd get a right answer. <laughs> Even AI doesn't know. Only God knows what he's working into your life through the difficulty you're facing. Even the faithful can find trials perplexing for the moment. You know, I, I think of one example of this may be Joseph. He had those dreams, two different dreams about how God was going to exalt him, how, how his family was going to look to him and even bow down before him. And then he gets sold into slavery. And I imagine as he walked behind those Ishmaelites, hands bound, looking back at his brothers, laughing as they divided up the silver, I don't think he was thinking, now God's going to bring it to pass. This is what God's going to use to fulfill those dreams. I just can't imagine that was the case. But he did persevere, and he did believe God. And God gave him wisdom. In, in time, he saw the promises of God come to pass. Wisdom is more than knowledge. The world has amassed more knowledge and continues to do so at an increasing rate but we lack wisdom. For the Jewish mind, wisdom meant practical righteousness in everyday living. Practical righteousness in everyday living. We look at our country's out of control spending, corrupt politicians, violent inner cities, the promotion of lawlessness, and the rush toward hedonism and we can clearly see the increase in knowledge hasn't resulted in wisdom. Job asked, but where can wisdom be found? And the answer came in verse 28 of that same chapter, chapter 28. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. The Psalms and the Proverbs agree. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and all those who practice it have good understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Considering these verses, to ask for wisdom is really to ask for the fear of the Lord. That is to understand that God is holy and that we are not and that he is righteous judge whom we should honor and trust. We can define it by its opposite. What the word says about those who have no fear of God in Psalm 36, one to four, it tells us that those who don't fear God, transgression speaks deep in their hearts. They believe their iniquity will not be found out. Their words are trouble and deceit. They do no good, they plot trouble they, and do not reject evil. The fear of the God then would be the opposite, shunning evil, knowing God sees you, being careful what you say, planning good things and rejecting evil. But that's just the beginning of wisdom and we can go on beyond that to see in the life of Jesus, the display of the wisdom of God in his behavior, and in his words. Knowing and following him is the way of wisdom. James is telling us to ask from the constantly giving God for the wisdom that comes from above. That would include getting to know Jesus of the gospels better. That would also be an understanding of the scriptures and their applications to our lives, as well as the sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The wisdom we gain from these sources then helps us respond as we should to the trials of life, greeting them with joy, letting them mature us rather than letting them make us bitter. James wrote that God gives without finding fault. God doesn't, if you ask God for wisdom, he doesn't say, well, uh, I don't, you're not quite good enough yet for wisdom to be given to you. Or when you reach a certain level of holiness, then I will answer your prayer. That's actually what pagan religions teach. Nor will God withhold wisdom because you did not apply it the last time he gave it to you. He gives it generously, like a father knowing to give good gifts to his children. And he knows we need wisdom to mature. He's just waiting for us to recognize the need and ask him for it and ask and you shall receive, Jesus said. The giver of all good things longs for us to ask, for that's the sign that we recognize the need and we're looking to him to meet that need. Until we get to that point, we think we're doing just fine on our own. But then it's the trials of life that help us recognize that we are in great need of the wisdom from God. We have the promise that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, 1 John 5, 14. What we need is supplied by our generous God so that we are lacking in nothing. God generously gives, but we must be still and receptive. It does us no good to ask and then go about everything in our own understanding hear from God in the life of Jesus, 
in the word from the Holy Spirit illuminating the word and you will receive the wisdom of, that God's pouring out in response to your prayers and then act on it. The following verses warn us that our request must be sincere and with a willingness to act accordingly. Verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. If we're going to ask for wisdom, James tells us that we must ask in faith. That is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, it's being certain that God is a generous giver, that he's a good father, that he wants to give us what we need. We must stand on the promises and know that he will fulfill them in his time and in his way. He wants us to have wisdom so we can know we are asking for what is his will. If we doubt that God will do what he's declared in his word, either we are doubting his word is indeed the word of God, or we're doubting God's ability to fulfill his word. We even may be doubting God's generosity. After all that God has done for us, that's really ridiculous. If God is all powerful, could he not oversee the process by which the scriptures have come down to us? Maybe it's that we doubt ourselves, and to some extent we should, but we must also trust that God can make new creations out of us, as his word declares. Doubting is an insult to God. He's already proven his love for us on the cross. He's given us life and breath and every good thing. James goes on to describe the doubter being like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. One moment he's this way, the next moment he's the other way. And this is often the case with those who are not yet born again. Even with those who are, tragedy can be used by the enemy of our soul or our old nature to cause us to doubt the goodness of God. Our soul can become overwhelmed with grief, but that means we're not standing on the rock of God's word, which cannot fail. The word gives us faith. We should recall all the past trials and how the Lord has brought us through those and stand on his promises. I think in most believers' lives, there, there comes a point when we decide that we've had enough proof We've had enough encounters with the living God, enough assurance that no matter what comes, we are going to reject doubt. It may knock on our door, but we've learned not to answer. That's one step forward down this path of wisdom. We take what comes to the word of God and settle the issue in our hearts. Faith aligns our emotions with our firm convictions. Verse 7, for that that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That is the person who doubts, doubts God's promises, doubts his word, doubts his very nature, should not expect God will give him wisdom. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Remember that we're talking about the testing of our faith that brings about perseverance and the wisdom that helps us live it out. But if we don't have faith, we can't even begin the process to maturity. Trials will just be meaningless pain that we think we have to endure. Lack of faith blocks us from receiving wisdom. If you're struggling to have faith, first, ask yourself, am I really open to what God has to say and his will for my life? I encourage you to read God's word and meditate on it. Talk through your issues with someone who knows the Bible well and applies it to their life. Ask God to increase the faith that you do have. We need to be honest with God about where we are in our spiritual journey because he already knows our hearts. Verse eight, he that is the doubting person is a double-minded man unstable in all he does. The double-minded man, that doubter, cannot be a solid believer and follow Jesus, nor can he happily go down the broad road. The very fact that he doubts means he's considering it may be true. He is one step closer than that, those who have no fear of God. Double-minded is the translation for daisukos, which is literally two-souled or with a divided soul. It may, in fact, be that James created this word and was first used in this passage. We don't see it anywhere earlier in Greek. A two-souled person. Jesus expressed it as trying to serve two masters. It's a matter of where your loyalties lie. If we've not committed to be loyal to our Lord, then why would he give us wisdom we're not going to apply? This is the one exception to the Lord not finding fault when we ask for wisdom. This frame of mind means that everything the doubter does is going to be unstable. One minute, he's sure he's going to do this, and the next minute, he decides not to. He's fighting within himself over what he believes and how he should live. But most of all, whether he's the master of his fate or if God is, is the meaning of life to serve oneself or to serve God? This is the constant battle within the one who doubts. The introduction of, uh, to James' letter tells us <clears throat> that the church of that day was struggling with persecution. James is telling them that though it's hard, it should be met with a joyful heart because God is polishing their faith and through it making them mature and complete. But also he's telling them to beware of letting doubt keep them from receiving wisdom from God to help them through the trials. James moves now on to the application of this wisdom in the church. He's probably addressing some problems he'd either witnessed or that someone had told him about. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. <coughs> Humility is lauded in Scripture as an important attribute. Philippians 2 even tells us that Christ when he found himself in the form of a man, humbled himself. Why would James tell the lowly brother to boast in exaltation? 
Well, in the early church, there were slaves who were appointed as elders within the church. I believe this is what James is referring to. Since we apply scripture to scripture to help us understand, we cannot interpret this as a lowly person boasting in himself. The scriptures forbid that. But rather in the amazing reality of this upside down world of God's kingdom. In the kingdom of God, social status is not a factor, but rather one's relationship with the Lord Jesus the wisdom given to them from God and their faithful interpretation and application of scripture has promoted them. What the lowly are boasting in is that God looks on the heart, not the social status. This is predicted in scripture. When Samuel was sent to anoint the king of Israel, the Lord told him not to look at the outer appearance because the Lord looks on the heart. This is why the lowly could boast in his exaltation. God saw his heart and chose him to be an elder. We could boast in the way God exalts those who have Jesus' servant's heart. Unlike the world that exalts those who benefit themselves or have the best outward appearance. Verse 10 and 11, and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fade, will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The rich should boast in their humiliation. Now, wealth often causes those who possess it to be prideful. Therefore, they can boast in their humiliation. God has done a work in their hearts. If the master of the slaves finds a slave as his elder and he submits to the elder's leadership, he can say that God has truly made him a new creation. He realizes how temporary life is, like the grass of the field that's here today dries up and is blown away. This reminds us of the parable of the rich man who had a great harvest and he built the bigger barns and he said to himself, I've got it made. I'm going to kick back and take it easy for the rest of my life. And in that parable, Jesus said the next day he died. And Jesus referred to him as a fool. Unlike the rich man, that particular rich man, the one who James is referring to has humbled himself. He's laying up his treasure in heaven. He's found true wisdom that help him acknowledge the brevity of life. He realized that he will pass away like the grass, like the flower that blooms and then fades. That's something to boast about. That change in heart, that change in perspective in the way that you see the world around you. God gave him wisdom that most people don't have. You know, I was just the other day thinking about, I, my youngest granddaughter is nine. And I was wondering how old, what year will it be when she's my age? And I did a little quick calculation, 2084? Oh my gosh, that sounds like an impossible date. And then I started thinking about, in the 60s, I read George Orwell's 1984. 
And when that time rolled around, I thought about how quickly things change and how time passes. The actors and the actresses I grew up watching, they have all faded like the flower and perished. And before we know it, we too will find our bodies fail and we're called to our heavenly home, just as Dee was yesterday. The wisdom that sees that the timeless is infinitely more important than the temporal is blessed. You can boast that God's given you that knowledge. If you're acting in accord with that knowledge, you can boast that God's given you wisdom. Knowledge is one thing. Living it out is wisdom. And I can boast in, in the Lord making this church a church that honors the relationship with the Lord above one's status of wealth or education. We have every status of life in this little church and they all love one another, knowing that we are the family of God. James started his letter addressing the readers as brothers. He'll also use the term dear brothers and my dear brothers. He saw not only his church in Jerusalem as, as his family, but those scattered abroad. And we too should see the worldwide church with all our different expressions as the family. That's why we're so involved in missions around the world. Their suffering is ours as well. Their joys are shared by us too and our joys with them. To this point in the first chapter of James, we, we've been challenged to see the world very differently from the way that unbelievers see the world. We're to see trials joyfully as a way to test our faith and build endurance and mature us. We're told of the need to ask God for wisdom, recognizing how little we know on our own. We're warned that if we doubt, our prayers for wisdom will not be answered, and we are to see that God looks upon the heart, not the social status or wealth. The uneducated may have a deeper relationship with God and greater wisdom than the PhD among us. For wisdom comes from above while being at the feet of Jesus and in his word. The wealthiest find that the servant is the greatest of all, as Jesus declared. James is describing this upside down world of God's kingdom and inviting us to embrace the wisdom that comes from above and reject the wisdom of man. Jill, will you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction. <laughs>